Today's verses will be coming from Habakkuk 1, 1 through 12. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, How long, O Lord, must I call for your help, but you do not listen? O cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict of bounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gathers prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like a wind and go on, guilty men, whose strength is their God. Are you not willing from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, will we not die? Why Habakkuk? <laughs> You say, I can't even pronounce that name. That's okay. You know what? We don't know how it's pronounced. It's a, a lone Akkadian word. No one knows. So Habakkuk, Habakkuk, whatever you like. Um, there's reason why I picked this minor prophet from the Old Testament. And you'll see as we develop it. Um, I, I hope that there was great um, spiritual maturation in the last series that we did. And the lessons from the cross. And I hope also as we turn to this Old Testament prophet. You know, you can be in church for 10, 15, 20 years and never hear this book preached from. But there's much wealth from it. And by God's grace, we will hear and we will be changed by it. Um, we don't know a lot about him. We don't know a lot about the book. We do know that he was an oracle. He was a prophet of Judah. And we know that he was prophesying... After the fall of the north, the Assyrians had taken the northern tribes of Israel um, in the 8th century. And then he was, pro he was prophesying probably somewhere around 620 after the fall of the north, before the, the south, before Judah and Jerusalem had been taken by the Babylonians in 582. And um, what he has to say for us is so relevant to our time. In fact, the reason that the book attracted me is because I hear people saying the same things that Habakkuk said over and over and over so long ago, and yet the answers remain the same. His name, he, the whole book, he's wrestling with God, and we'll see this. And it's great because his name means to, to embrace or to wrestle with. And we'll see this take place. And there were, there were two commentaries. The titles struck me. The commentaries are good also, but the titles were great. Uh, Warren Wearsby's title of his commentary was From Worry to Worship, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was From Fear to Faith. And both paint a great picture of the entire book. To move from worry to worship and to move from fear to faith. And by God's grace, my hope is that as we go through this and we study this, you will do the same. You will go from being a worrisome, anxious soul to someone who worships God rightly. 
And you'll go be, from someone who maybe is afraid of lots of things in life to being a person that is filled with faith. Four things I'd like to look at in these 12 verses this morning. One, what did Habakkuk see? Two, what did he do? Three, what did he hear? And then four, what does it all mean? What did he see? What did he do? What did he hear? And what does it mean? Let's look first at what he saw. The word injustice that's used here in the Hebrew, it is a general word for evil or sorrow or grief. And if you look at verse 3, Habakkuk is crying out and he says, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And he was experiencing unprecedented evil in his day. He was seeing a nation that at one time worshipped the living God turn away and embrace idolatry and embrace immorality. There was no justice. There was oppression. In fact, he goes so far as there's an expression of feeling trapped by it. And Solomon addresses this in Ecclesiastes 9. Solomon said, As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. King Josiah, who had reigned prior to um, Habakkuk's prophesying, he was a good king, and he brought in a hope of good times to the nation of Israel. In fact, he was the one, if you remember, was restoring the temple, and they found the laws of Moses, and he brought it back, and he turned to the living God and submitted to the laws, and the people did as well. And so there was a glorious movement, and then his children came along. And his children, Jehoaz and Jehoiakim, were evil kings. And they moved in the opposite direction. In a very short period of time, Israel went from a country that knew God and knew His laws and worshipped Him to turning away and worshipping idols and becoming unjust and immoral to an extreme. And that's why he declares, and look at verse 4, he says, The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And what Habakkuk is saying is, these are evil times. Immoral, immorality abounds. Idolatry abounds. We are no longer a people that fear God. There, it's evil on the inside and it's evil on the outside. We see oppressors coming at us from every side. But that's not only what he says. He doesn't only say, this is what I see. He then says something in verses 2 and 3. He wants to know why God is not intervening. Look with me. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? And what he's saying is, Why aren't you doing anything? We're supposed to be your people, holy people, and I see injustice everywhere. I see morality and oppression, and you are not intervening. Why? It's bold. He comes before him. And what's so striking to me in our culture and in our time, I hear the same cries from some of you. I certainly hear it in the mainstream media. I hear it from our politicians. This cry is, these are dark times. Why isn't somebody stepping in? Where is God now? Why isn't he doing something about this? In fact, he lists, Habakkuk lists six different problems in this passage. Sin, Wickedness, destruction, violence, no justice in the courts, and the wicked outnumbering the righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds very much like the popular culture today. It sounds like the time in which we live. Historically, we see periods of good times and bad times. We see in our own country, we saw it in the nation of Israel. 
You know, our, the Western perception of good times is a little different than theirs. Our perception is that things will always be getting better for us, easier for us. Economically speaking, we'll always be better off, right? I'm the thought of, well, my children will live a better life. We will have a retirement that enables us to do whatever we want to do, right? Our homes will increase in value. You can laugh. Yeah, that's funny now. This perpetual increase of standard of living. From 1870 to 1910 in our country, we had that period of good times. There was technological advances then that made life dramatically different. The economy was growing. The standard of living for the masses was increasing. And then we hit the 20th century. We had World War I. We had the stock market crash of 1929. We had World War II. We had the Holocaust. We had the rise of communism and totalitarianism sweep through Europe. And by the end of the 1940s, do you know that Europe, in the end of the 1940s, thousands of people were dying of starvation every winter in Europe? In the 1940s, people weren't saying, good times are coming. Decade after decade after decade of hard, evil times. And the question was, will this ever end? Where is God in the midst of this? Why isn't He doing something to help us? So as a people, we have to ask ourselves, where are we culturally? I mean, you can't, no one could have experienced the past two years, let alone the past two decades, and say, surely good times are right around the corner. Next year is going to be better for us. I know the politicians are telling you that, that's so you can vote for them. But soberly, it would be foolish to think, well, of course, two years from now will be better. Five years from now it will be better. How do we know that? How do we know that the last two years where major institutions, financial institutions that have been around for decades collapsed will not be the norm? How do we know? I mean, we look, if you look around and you look at our political system, which is on the verge of moral collapse, and you look at our educational system, and it is, it is, if you look at the moral depravity that now defines our culture, you have to say, are, are, we, are we, I don't want to, we're not supposed to panic. But isn't it equally foolish to think, well, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Of course it's going to get better. Why do we say that? Why do we think that? How do we know that? That question must be asked in light of this book. And here's the great thing. If we know what Habakkuk saw and heard and how he responded, then when the evil times come, you're not going to be shocked. You're not going to go, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to our country? This is America. You won't be. You'll know how to respond when evil times come. So the first thing that, that Habakkuk saw, he said, there's evil everywhere. There's injustice. There's oppression where are you, Lord? And look at the second thing that he does. I mean, what does he actually do in light of this sight? What do we do when we see evil times upon us, maybe individually or as a family or as a community? How does he respond? He did two things. First, notice in verse 3, he says, Why do you tolerate wrong? He's, he's praying to God. I mean, this is a bold statement. This is a courageous statement. He comes before the living God who he fully believes in and says, Why are you tolerating this evil? Why aren't you doing something about it? I mean, he's transparent. He's out there. He's before the living God saying, Why do you tolerate that which I see? Straightforward. But verse 12 is astonishing. And it, it misses the mark entirely in the English translation. In verse 12 he says, O oh Lord, are you not everlasting? Are you not infinite? 
And it sounds a bit innocuous. Maybe he's just asking a question. Maybe he really doesn't know. But in the Hebrew, it's very different. In the Hebrew, it's a rhetorical question. And in the Hebrew, this is essentially what he's saying. I thought you were infinite. I thought you were a great God, a wise God, an infinite God, an everlasting God. But if you were, you'd be doing something. Therefore, you fill it in. Where are you? He comes so close to that line of blasphemy. I mean, he's right on it. Francis Anderson, a Hebrew scholar, commenting on the use of this particular Hebrew phrase, Are you not? In verse 12, listen to what he writes. Most of the 96 occurrences of this word in the Bible are in vigorous human arguments. Nothing, therefore, could have been more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer in verse 12. There is nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. God is not being approached with courtesy and respect. Habakkuk is in absolute anguish. Do you know why? I mean, in verses 2 through 4, he's asking God, Why so much injustice? Why aren't you stepping in? You are a holy God. We're supposed to be the nation that brings salvation to the world. And yet, there's corruption in our nation. The masses have turned away. And then God answers him in five, verses 5 through 11. And the answer is astonishing. It's one that he did not expect to hear. In essence, he said this, I know, Habakkuk. That is why I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up a bloodthirsty, thirsty, ruthless people that are going to sweep through the world. They're going to come into your country. They're going to demolish your land. They're going to destroy your temple. They're going to tear down your walls. And they're going to take you into exile. What? I mean, his response is... I just prayed to you, asking you to intervene. Why aren't you intervening? And this is the answer that you give me? I see injustice. Come in and make it right, and you're going to overthrow the entire country? You're going to take us into slavery? This is it? Do you see why he's so shocked? Do you see why he's angry? Do you see why he's right on the line of blasphemy? It's a ridiculous response to him. He's saying, I thought you were supposed to be infinite and wise. And when he said that, he is, he's over the top. He's intemperate. He's moved beyond right boundaries. But know this. He's wrestling with God. I mean, he is with God, wrestling with God, asking the real hard questions that we're afraid to ask. But he does something else which is even more extraordinary. He continues to pray. In fact, we get this in verse chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, when he says, I will wait to see what God says to me. In verses 1 through 4, he poses the question, Where are you, God? All the injustice. In verses 5 through 11, God says, I hear you, I, I know what's going on, and I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then he comes back again, and he prays again. He continues to seek God's face. So on the one hand, he's challenging, and he's bold before God. But on the other hand, not for a moment does he think to turn away. Not for a moment does he say, You know what? I don't like your answer, Lord. I'm going to go find another God to serve. It's not an option for him. He never ceases to obey and follow the living God. And do you know why? You know, he asks God. He gets an answer. He doesn't like the answer. But did you notice what he does not do? He doesn't start blogging. He doesn't get on and do a little twittering. I know that's probably not grammatically correct. Forgive me. And send out to all his friends, I pray to God, this is what God said. Do you believe that? And the friends saying that, that's unbelievable. What a terrible answer. What kind of God is this? What does he do? He continues to pray. He doesn't complain to his friends. He continues to pray. He continues to submit to God. It's so radical. In fact, we notice it in verse 12. 
he goes at one point from saying, Lord, I thought you were infinite. I thought you were all-powerful. In the same verse, look at what he says in verse 12. It's so incredible. After saying this, one response, he then says, Yahweh Elohim Kadash. And it means, my Lord, my God, my Holy One. So he goes from borderline insulting God to then saying, you're my Lord, you're my God, you're my King. He's lost his mind. And what's going on? Do you see what he's doing? He is faithfully and unconditionally wrestling with the creator of the universe. Now, it's been about 15 years since I've been preaching and teaching the word of God. And it's rare to find anybody like this. I mean, this is a rare man who goes before the living God and challenges God. Even questions his character. And then turns around the same thing and says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You're my God, my Lord, my King. Who, are, who is he? We don't see this. We see two types of people. You see, people who have been raised in the church and who are traditional religious types, they look at what Habakkuk said and he says, oh, don't talk like that. I mean, this is a king. You got to say the right thing and do the right thing and act the right way and put the right mask on or he'll get you. Right? I mean, in traditional religion, not gospel of grace, it's this looking right, speaking right, and acting right because the king, if he sees you doing it wrong, he might smite you. Habakkuk, never talk like that. That's one extreme. The other extreme is the modern man. The modern man who through the enlightenment period came through thinking we have this overwhelming sense of reason and what is right and wisdom. And so the modern man, even within the church today, looks at what's happening in the evil times and say, how could God let this happen? I mean, if he's real and he's all-powerful, then why isn't he intervening? And because he's not intervening, then obviously he's not real. I'm not going to believe in a God like this. And the modern man walks away. Habakkuk does neither. He doesn't put on the traditional mask of religion and crossing his T's and dotting his I's and doing all the right things and saying... He doesn't do that. He approaches God boldly and challenges God. At the same time, he doesn't cop out like modern man saying, if you don't do God what I think you should do, if you don't act as I think you should act in human history, if you don't make my life right and my family's life right and our country, then I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to follow another God. One commentator paraphrased Habakkuk saying this. Listen. Habakkuk. I wouldn't be upset if I thought you weren't holy, but I know you are. I wouldn't be upset if I thought I could walk away, but I know I can't. Because I can't figure out life with you, how in the world am I going to figure out life on my own? Where else do I go? You have the words of eternal life. That is why I'm so upset. Did you hear that? Habakkuk comes before God. And he's not dishonest. He doesn't put on the mask of religion. And he's not, he doesn't reject God because God isn't doing his will. He comes before God and he's unconditionally, faithfully wrestling with the Lord. Is that you? Is that us? I mean, why isn't the church? It's not going to happen, but why not in the church? Why don't we have a church full of unconditional, faithful wrestlers with God? I'll tell you why. Because the gospel of grace does not move us as it should. If the gospel of grace moved the church today, the church would be full of Habakkuk's. 
Your name's a little bit better, but it would be full of people who are unconditionally, faithfully wrestling with God. Coming before Him, transparent and honest and raw, but not, say, but not them leaving if they don't get the right answer. You know, this is not the first time that a man spoke like this. Psalms 88, just listen, ends the prayer, ends the song, asking God to remove Himself. You have, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend, not the light, not you. Psalm 39, 13, the psalmist ends the psalm with this, saying to God, look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. If you've read the book of Job, he walks that line. Jeremiah walks that line. Why? Why are these prayers in the book? Why are these people not smited on the spot? Why does God allow Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Job and the psalmist to live? Derek Kinder in his commentator, his commentary said this of these prayers. Listen, very insightful. He said, these prayers make no more sense than Peter's statement to Jesus, depart from me, O Lord. But the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's, listen, understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. Did you hear that? He knows how we speak when we're desperate. He knows how we talk when we're in anguish. He knows how we pray when the weight of the world is upon us and evil has ensnared us. He doesn't smite Habakkuk or Job or Jeremiah or the psalmist. So what, but why would he leave the prayers here? I mean, did he leave them here with you? This is the model prayer. You have the Our Father, Our Father, and Habakkuk. No. I mean, Habakkuk went over the top. He challenged God's character. So are we, we're not supposed to pray like that. To know. So why are they here? Why are they left here? Listen, for one reason. God is saying this. I know how you speak when you're desperate. And yet in Christ I remain your God. Did you hear that? I remain your God not because you put on a happy face or say all the right things because you don't. I remain your God not because you're emotionally in control because at times you're not. I remain your God not because you're doing all the right things at all the right times because you're not. He says fundamentally through these prayers, I remain your God because I made a covenant and I'm faithful. My love is an everlasting love and my grace is real grace. And therefore you fail time and time again in Christ. I will never fail you. And that's why the prayer is here. Because you prayed this prayer. I prayed this prayer where you've crossed that line. You said, Lord, why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't you intervening in this mess? My life's a mess. Why aren't you figuring it out? God doesn't leave. He doesn't forsake you. Do you see how far ahead Habakkuk was of his time? He got the gospel. He entered the throne room of the holiest of holies as we saw in Hebrews chapter 10. And he said to God, what is going on? But he never left. He wouldn't leave the throne room. He says, I'm not leaving. I don't like your answer a bit. I don't like this idea of the Babylonians coming in and destroying my nation and tearing down my walls and taking my family and my friends in exile. I don't like it, but I'm not leaving. He wrestled unconditionally, faithfully with the living God. He didn't fall into that religious trap. Let's be real good. And he didn't forsake God like modern man saying, well, God's not doing what we're supposed to do, therefore. This, my beloved, is how you deal with evil times. 
You must, as Habakkuk was, become an unconditional, faithful wrestler. You must come before God into the holiest of holies and speak. So we see what he saw, evil times. We know what he did. He unconditionally, faithfully wrestled with God. What did he hear, though? I mean, when we read verses 5 through 11, it sounds terrible, right? I mean, it does. I don't know about you, but I would not have wanted to have been in Judah when the Babylonians were coming upon me, because that's a description of utter destruction. I want you to notice two things. There are many that we could point out, but just two things, then one main theme to come out of this, what he heard. God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to believe or understand, but I'm going to tell you because you're asking. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. That's the first thing that he says. I'm going to tell you something you're not going to understand. And then he tells him in verse 6 what that is. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole world to seize dwelling places, not their own. Do you see why Habakkuk is so confused? He asked God to intervene. He asked God to... There's injustice. He says, bring, bring justice. He said, we are enslaved to sin and immorality. Bring salvation. He asked this. And then God, this interaction between God, God is saying, I am. But you don't like my answer. Fundamentally, listen, God is saying to Habakkuk, lovingly but sternly, don't you dare put your timetable on me. Habakkuk, don't you dare tell me how history ought to unfold. Habakkuk, don't you dare put your calendar on top of my calendar. Habakkuk's confused, and rightfully so, because the scriptures taught that Judah would bring salvation to the world, but Judah's a mess. It's corrupt, morally depraved. And so he comes before God asking this, and it doesn't make any sense to him. When God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, a violent nation, I'm going to bring more violence. Do you see the answer? Habakkuk's saying there's violence. He says, I'm going to bring more violence. He says, there's injustice. He says, I'm going to bring more injustice. Habakkuk says, there's oppression of the righteous. God says, I'm bringing more oppression. doesn't make any sense. It couldn't make sense. And that's why he says, I'm going to tell you, but you're not going to get it. But we, in the gospel of grace and through Christ, and because we have the lens of history, we ought to. I mean, I'm just going to give you a couple here, but I could go a myriad of ways. If the Jews had not fallen to the Babylonians and been taken into exile... Listen. Then the word of God would not have gone out. And the word of God in the synagogues, you know, when, when Jews would establish a community in a city, they'd have a synagogue where they would gather and, and learn the teachings and worship God. And, it, and if the Babylonians had not come and taken them out, some came back under Ezra and Nehemiah, right? But there was the diaspora Jew now that had moved throughout the empire, throughout the world. And during this time, it was extraordinary. They attracted a pagan that, they, that became what are called God-fears. And the God-fears weren't Jews. They were pagans, but they were pagans that were now worshiping and following Yahweh. And we know from the very book of Acts itself that when the gospel came and the gospel went out, you know who received it first? It wasn't the Jews. And it wasn't the pagans. It was all the God-fears in these synagogues spread throughout the empire. And the God-fears became people of great fortitude in sharing the gospel of grace. Habakkuk could have seen that. He didn't get that. We, though, do. 
we see God working intimately through the Babylonians to have his will done. In fact, there's even a greater irony. If I can paint another historical picture, and it's incredible. Human sacrifice, the Colosseum, violent public displays of brutality, infanticide, slavery. This was commonplace. I know we're horrified by it, right? Because we're modern people. This was commonplace throughout the world in all of human history. Commonplace. They were givens. So listen. Because God through the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, and because the Jews took their word with them and became dispersed throughout the empire and started synagogues, teaching God's word, and become the, because the Greeks came along a little bit later and they had, for the first time, globalization, really. They had a common language. And so you could write a book in Greek, hence the New Testament. And the, you could write a book and throughout the entire empire people could read the same book. And then because the Romans came along and overcame through violence the Greeks and instituted, built roads and brought in the Pax Romana where the fullness of time was complete and the gospel comes in and what happens? It spreads throughout the entire world. Why? Because God brought the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. What? Yes. Do you see the picture? Intricate, providential, perfect, sovereign God working all these pieces together. So Habakkuk says, I asked you to relieve the violence and you brought more violence. I asked you to come in and do something with injustice and you're bringing more injustice. I said, come in God and relieve the oppression. You're bringing more oppression. And what he didn't see is what God was doing all the way to the cross and beyond. One commentator said this. The irony is that the violence of those great empires led to the spread of Christianity and it is Christianity that has led to all the nations being less violent. God knew this. Habakkuk did not. He could not see it. In 1949, when China was overcome by the Communist Party, the white evangelical Christian missionaries were cast out. And the Habakkuks came out everywhere. They were saying, a hundred years of missionary work in China, down the tubes. I mean, we in our arrogance, right? In the Western world, because only we can evangelize and only we can share the gospel of grace. What happened? And what's happened in China since 1949? Two amazing things. One, the church no longer was following the white man's religion. The gospel actually became indigenous and took root for the first time. And then the church was persecuted. And in the persecution of the church... The church grows. What a strange thing. China right now is one of the most vital churches in all the world. In fact, the projections are that in the next couple decades, there are going to be three to four hundred million Chinese Christians. Now imagine the impact that will have on the world. Imagine. God knew what he was doing when the communists took over China in 1949. God knew what he was doing when the white evangelical missionaries were cast. He knew what he was doing. God's calendar may not be our calendar, but he's still sovereign and he's still completely and totally in control. The dialogue here, it's almost comical. In fact, it is a bit. In verse 5, I mean, look, at, look at verse 5. God says this, God, you want an answer, Habakkuk, to what I'm doing? I'll tell you, but you're not going to understand. Habakkuk, tell me what you're doing, God. God says, I'll tell you, but you're not going to get it. Habakkuk, tell me. I want to know God. God, okay, this is it. Habakkuk says, I don't get it. God says, I told you you weren't going to get it. 
You asked. I answered. You said you wanted to know. I said you weren't going to get it. You don't get it, and now you're upset. I had an example of a two-year-old with hot coffee, but I had an example in my week that was this week that was better with my own son. I have a seven-year-old, precocious young man, all boy. I pick him up at school, dirt, head to toe. Good day, Joshua. Yes, good day, Dad. Pure dirt. So he comes home and he says, Dad, I'm starting to do backflips now. I went, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, I want to see him. I'm like, no, listen. And the young man that he learned from, his father owns um, Sky High where they have trampolines, right? So the young man learned on a trampoline how to do a backflip. And I say to my son Joshua, listen to me very carefully. You are never, ever, 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 ever to do a backflip without a trampoline or someone around you teaching you. Oh, no, Dad, I can do it. He got mad. He got really mad. Why? Why? Why is it that our children scream all the time? Why are they always upset? Do you know why? Because they don't understand. I tried to explain to them. Spinal cord. Nerves. Paralyzed. Quadriplegic. I don't get it. I'm like, okay, listen, you may not get it, but you need to trust me. You, you, need, you may not understand now, but you've got to trust me because if you don't, you're going to be seriously hurt and you may kill yourself. Anyway, okay. He's seven. I mean, how can he possibly contemplate a quadriplegic? And so God was saying to Habakkuk, you don't understand. We don't understand all that God is doing. You can't. I mean, really? If you say, God, I want to understand everything, I want to know everything, that's an impossible statement. It's impossible. In fact, it doesn't make any sense to say to God, I need to know everything. It's a nonsensical statement. I didn't expect Joshua at that point to get the possible ramifications of him doing a backflip and breaking his neck. But I do need him to trust me as his father. And he got that. I said, don't I love you? Yes. Don't I care for you? Yes. Do I ever give you bad advice? No. I said, then trust me. He goes, okay. Listen. If you shake your hand at God when he doesn't give you the right answer, if all the evil that you see around you in the culture, in your family, in your life doesn't make sense, and because of it you get inordinately angry, or maybe worse yet, you're the modern man, where you walk away from God, do you realize that you're more immature than the seven-year-old? Do you realize that response takes radical immaturity to make? I mean, my seven-year-old got it. A two-year-old can get trust, even though they may not understand. If you do not trust in God, even though you don't understand everything that He's doing, ultimately you will die a spiritual death. So first, Habakkuk saw the evil. Secondly, he prayed faithfully and unconditionally as a wrestler. Thirdly, he heard what God was going to do. And he responded accordingly. Lastly, what does all this mean? I mean, this is just an introduction, by the way. It gets much better, so stick around. What does all this mean? In verse 5, God said to Habakkuk, Look at the nations and Watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if, even if you were told. He's saying, watch and be amazed. Salvation will come out of judgment. I'm going to bring justice out of injustice, peace out of violence. 
This is a dual prophecy. You know what a dual prophecy is? A dual prophecy is when the prophet is revealing something that's going to happen in the time of the life of the prophet and a time in, some, in the future. This is one of those. It's one of those jewels that you grab onto and you hold onto with all your might scripturally. In Acts chapter 13, Paul reveals something amazing. Because what God was saying to Habakkuk was this, the Babylonians are coming, and this is going to be my discipline against you, and good will come from it. Ultimate good will come from it. But at the same time, he's pointing Habakkuk and the entire world to Calvary and Christ. How do we know that? The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 13, he's preaching the gospel. He's saying that Jesus Christ had to suffer and die, and on the third day, he had to rise again. And then he says this in verse 38 and following. Listen. He says, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. And then he says in verse 40, look at what the prophet said. This is Habakkuk, by the way. Look and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Did you hear that? Paul takes Habakkuk 1.5 when God says, I'm going to be doing something you will never believe, something astounding. And Paul says, it's Christ. Out of the ultimate judgment, He will bring justice to mankind. Out of the ultimate violence, He will bring peace to mankind. Out of the ultimate act of injustice, He will deliver man from the chains of sin and death. Habakkuk could not get it, but we absolutely must, in light of the gospel of grace, that God would bring eternal justice on His Son to make us just. That God would do the unthinkable, and He would have us engage in the most violent, wicked, unjust act in all of human history on His Son to bring justice to mankind. That God would come in the form of a man and voluntarily go to the cross and receive 100% of the wrath that we rightly deserved so that man could be delivered from his sin. Habakkuk did not understand that God was bringing salvation out of injustice to the Holy One, to His Son Himself. But on the cross, it all makes sense. On the cross, we can finally get it. Because on the cross, the Holy Son of God, who was perfect, took it all. He took all the injustice and all the violence and all the hatred. He took it upon Himself. And then instead of turning and lashing out on us, He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And He gives us, through repentance and faith, His grace and His mercy and His love instead. We must get this. This is the gospel itself. The very heart of our hope. Because of our sins... We've removed ourselves from the presence of God. But God, through His incredible act on the cross, ushers us back into the throne room. Ushers us back in to speak freely. Ushers us back in to enjoy the covenant of grace that we do not deserve, but we have through Christ. All those who witnessed Christ die on the cross stood there thinking, what good could come from this? All the disciples fled saying, what good could come from this? And yet we know in hindsight that the ultimate good for mankind came from Him, from His sacrifice, from that work on Calvary. You may not understand everything that God is doing. 
You cannot understand everything that God is doing. But you must trust in his good work. You must, like a child, trust in a good father, in your good father, to do what is right, even when it seems darkest in your life. Jesus Christ, whether you know that Habakkuk was a type and shadow of Christ, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Habakkuk. How so? There was a time when Christ wrestled like no other man. Habakkuk's wrestling, right? And he says to God, God, there's violence and there's immorality and lack of justice in my country. Do something. And God comes and says, I'm going to do something. You're not going to like it. You're not going to understand it. Christ wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestled so much he was sweating blood. And he says to God the Father, as he wrestles, Lord, if there's any other way, any other way but the cross, any other way to make this work. But then he says, but thy will be done, not mine. Don't you see, he is the unconditional, faithful wrestler for mankind. He comes before God, he says, is there another way, Lord? He challenges the cross. But then he says, your will, not mine. He stays in the presence of God. He is the ultimate, unconditional, faithful wrestler. He is the ultimate Habakkuk. And that means this, for you and for me, that know Christ as Lord and Savior. When things get really bad, and you don't get it, and you ask God for understanding, and He gives you an answer you don't like, and you still don't get it, look to the cross. Look to the cross and trust in Christ. When you look around the world and you see collapse everywhere, and if the times do get much more evil than they do get better in our lifetime, instead of shaking your fist at God, instead of becoming blasphemous, instead of leaving the presence of God and turning to another God or turning to an idol, look to the cross and trust in Christ. When you feel abandoned, as Habakkuk did, know that Christ was abandoned for you completely so that you would never be And you know what that means? That means when you feel like you're abandoned by God, it's not real. Do you know that? That means when you feel like you've been forsaken by God and He's not here, it's not real. He's here. And all all the hardship and all the suffering, He's working, He's active, He's present. Do you know that? It's not real. He said, I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. It's real. And we know that because He abandoned His own Son so that He wouldn't forsake us. That means it doesn't matter how dark it gets or how evil the times may become. You can trust in Christ. Completely and totally trust in the Lord. So my petition for you this morning, through the power of the gospel of grace, become an unconditional, faithful wrestler. Take off the religious mask Stop being so prim and proper in the wrong way to appease a king who you're afraid is going to smite you. Stop playing the game of religion. Stop fleeing from God every time things don't go well in your life. Stop abandoning Him every time you think that you've been abandoned. Stay in Christ. Jesus is saying this from the cross, and I'll close. From the cross, he says, Realize, dear child, that dark times can come upon us all, but it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. 
Know that there is a reason for everything that God is doing. And someday you'll know what it is. But until then, Christ says to you, Trust me. Believe in me. Look to me. Follow me. With a childlike faith. And he'll bring you through. Let's pray. We have so much now, Lord, that we can see that Habakkuk did not. We can see you working throughout human history in ways that even boggle the historians. We see you knitting together this church throughout history. We see you working intimately and providentially in our own lives. We see a crucified Christ that's risen from the dead. We hear your word tell us the Holy Spirit has come and dwells in all those who have repented and believe. We know that we have the power to overcome all things through you because you strengthen us. We know because of the work of Christ that we have hope both now and for eternity. We know all these things, Lord. How much more so should we be wrestling faithfully, unconditionally? How much more powerful should our faith be than that of Habakkuk's? I pray that we as a church would be those people denying the false religion, never turning away from you, but seeking your truth and your face, Lord, boldly and courageously coming into the holiest of holies, knowing there's nowhere else to go. You have the word of life. Christ is the word of life. Draw us in, Lord, as a church that we would become those people. In Christ's name, amen.